Well, I tell you, there's some interesting stuff in this paper. Sometimes the news is kind of shaky in the paper, but if you concentrate real hard, you can get something out of it. I was, I was reading in this, and I, I was amazed to find something out. Uh, we, we've been studying in our preaching about dispensationalism, and listen to this. It says here, quote, since we are unaware of any outbreak coming from attendance at Catholic Mass in St. Joseph County, we are confident that the precautionary measures which we have put in place have been effective in preventing the spread in our Catholic parishes, end quote. Uh, the diocese said this in a statement. We are nonetheless grateful to the St. Joseph County Health Department uh, for their diligence and will keep their advisement in mind as we continue to monitor for signs of spread in the Catholic community of St. Joseph County. Many of the diocese parishes offer live stream masses and will continue to do so, diocese spokeswoman Jennifer Zimmerman said in the follow-up mail. She did not provide information on whether Bishop Kevin C. Rhodes will extend his dispensation on the obligation to attend Mass in person beyond its scheduled November 1st expiration. Did you hear that? Roman Catholics are dispensationalists. <laughs> I never knew that. Listen, listen to this. She did not provide information on whether Bishop Kevin C. Rhodes will extend his dispensation on the obligation to attend Mass in person beyond its scheduled November 1 expiration date. Well, now, that's not exactly the kind of dispensations we've been talking about. But if you look at it, I thought it might be an opportunity for us to see in another context the meaning of the word because the way the word is used here in meaning is the same meaning that we are giving it when we use it with regard to the Bible. Listen, she did not provide information on whether Bishop Kevin C. Rhodes will extend his dispensation on the obligation to attend Mass in person. Now, when we talked about dispensations the last couple of weeks, we used three specific points to illustrate what a dispensation is. Does anybody remember what those were? At the top, you have the, nobody remembers? No, everybody's afraid to say it out loud, aren't you? Afraid it might be wrong for all these people. Okay, I'll help you. At the top, we had the Lord. The Lord, he is the owner of everything. In Scripture, the Lord owns all the earth. Okay? Then we have the house. The house is the earth that the Lord owns. Or we put it, you remember, a couple weeks ago, in terms of some wealthy individual who might buy a household in the area here. He owns a household. He is in charge. He owns the house. And he appoints a steward to watch over the house and carry out the instructions that he gives with regard to what is to take place in the house. So you have the Lord who is overall, who owns a house, which is the earth, and gives a steward instruction as to how to administer the house. This is exactly the idea here. In this picture, the, the individual mentioned, Bishop Kevin C. Rhodes, speaks on behalf of the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church in this 
situation, in this use of the word, is the Lord. And uh, the stewards are the people who attend Mass. And the household is the parish and the church. And so the, the bishop is giving the order to the steward that he is to attend Mass in person until further notice. This is the dispensation of attending Mass in person. <laughs> That's what it is. You have a Lord, you have a household, which is the parish, and you have a steward, and the stewards of the parish are to attend Mass live. That is the idea of a dispensation. Unfortunately, when it comes to the Bible, they don't really have any concept of what a dispensation is. Amen. if you pass out those outlines, we're going to do something a little different this morning. Uh, we anticipated not having quite as much time to preach as we usually do because of the baptism and different things we've been doing this morning, but it looks like I really have more time than I thought, but that's okay. Uh, rather than continuing with our individual dispensations in great detail, we're going to back off a minute and say, wait a minute, where are we going with this? And also, I want to address a question. Well, I do pay attention to the questions you ask and the comments that you make. They're very important to me in my preaching. And I, I like the preaching to be spontaneous in the sense that we don't follow necessarily a schedule that's uh, unmovable or unchangeable, but if issues come up and people ask questions, we might steer the course of preaching in the direction of their questions to make things relevant and understandable. Because usually when somebody has a question, somebody else and somebody else and somebody else has the same question, but they're afraid to ask it or don't get around to it or whatever the reason. Well, Rob Hall gave me a question a week or so ago. He said, well, you know, you're teaching about how dispensationalists would interpret these great covenants of the Bible. But just so I can understand, how would non-dispensationalists handle these texts of the Bible? And that's a very good question because it helps us to understand better how we understand the Bible if we understand how some other people approach it. And we have said before and say again that if you believe in the literal, historical, cultural, grammatical interpretation of Scripture, that you will be a dispensationalist. Uh, I might also add, Zachary mentioned when I asked a couple of weeks ago for the, the four, the literal, grammatical, historical, cultural, he mentioned another one called consistency or consistent. That's, by the way, Zach is a very good fifth one to add. But even though we have these terms of definition, we have variableness as people apply these things in different ways. Now, of course, some people don't really apply this hermeneutic, this way of studying the scriptures at all. And as I've listed in our outline today, some different groups, I've kind of started from the one that is the furthest away to the ones that are closer in, in terms of being dispensationalists. And so I want to, I found out to answering Rob's question was, was not really a real easy, simple thing. Not that it's difficult, but in terms of the amount of information that needs to be conveyed to adequately explain how people who are non-dispensational interpret these covenants in these parts of the Bible. So it's going to take a, a little bit of focus here. And maybe you'll run across a couple of new terms in the course of this. Don't be afraid of new terms. But uh, listen carefully and let's think about this for a moment. The Roman Catholic Church. The, the Roman Catholic Church of all the different groups that I can think of that are Christian in the nominal sense of the word 
has uh, totally disregarded the idea of interpreting the Bible literally in the context in which it's found in various places in the Bible. They are not exegetical. They are, in fact, eisegetical, which means that they often use a preconceived idea to find a verse of Scripture or a portion of Scripture that will back it up or justify it. The Bible is not their primary authority. You need to understand this if you witness to a Roman Catholic person and you use your Bible. In their mentality, the Bible is not the ultimate authority. The ultimate authority is a magisterium. Now, you'll look in your outlines and you'll see a word there, ministerium. Excuse me, that's a dumb preacher. My resident theologian corrected that, but it had already gone to print. It should be magisterium. A ministerium would be a Protestant group of pastors. A magisterium is a body of people or individuals in the Roman Catholic Church who make the ultimate decisions about what the Catholic and doctrine of the Roman Church will be. If you want to know the official statement of it is found in a catechism. I think the most recent one is in the late 90s. I may be wrong about that, but they periodically issue a catechism that explains their doctrine, and uh, that was done in the 90s. So, so the Roman Catholic doesn't think of this as the ultimate source. It is the magisterium that is the ultimate source, and how they interpret this book is truth. So you need to understand that, first of all. And then you need to find out or understand that they're guilty of eisegesis. Exegesis means to bring out the meaning of the text. We have an exit there, which is how you leave or draw people out of the auditorium. Exegesis is taking the Bible and drawing the truth and understanding of what it says into your mind and terms. Eisegesis, on the other hand, is taking some concept out here that you are committing to and then going to your Bible and trying to find justification for that idea or that theology. That's eisegesis. And uh, although there may be here and there places where the Roman Catholic Church uses a little bit of exegesis, by and far, uh, if they even are aware of the Bible, many, many very high-ranking individuals and uh, ministering individuals don't really know much about the Bible, you'll find out. But uh, they, they often use eisegesis or they try to use the scriptures in order to fit a preconceived idea. With a disregard of the context, sometimes even a disregard of Scripture itself, not really caring whether they can justify their position or their statement of their practice in the Bible, because after all, it is the magisterium, which is in ultimate control. So there's disregard of the change made by the covenant program. They spiritualize freely, and they kind of have a practice that blends the whole Bible together in kind of a porridge. Uh, they take the priesthood of the Old Testament, which was clearly set aside according to the book of Hebrews, and have a priest in the New Testament concept. And in the Old Testament, the priests often offered animal blood sacrifices upon the altar. And in their New Testament conception, they take this priest's idea, which is drawn from the Old Testament, and he presents sacrifices of blood to God in heaven as well. But it's the blood of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. It's the blood supposedly by Catholic dogma, the dogma of transubstantiation, that the grape juice is turned into the body of the blood of Christ, 
and you can't taste it, and you can't scientifically analyze it, but it is mystically turned into the blood of Christ, and the bread is turned into the body of Christ. So the priest who stands before and does the ceremony over these elements is performing a ceremony that transforms them into the body and blood of Christ, even though they look like wine and crackers. So they've taken an Old Testament concept, which was done away with, according to the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, and they brought it into New Testament church practice, a total disregard of the uh, at two, two major dispensations we could talk of, the Old Testament and New Testament. Many people are not dispensationalists, still believe in dispensations in the sense of the Old Testament dispensation and the New Testament dispensation, but they even take those and blend them together. So there's the priesthood, there's the Eucharist. Uh, the church is Israel. And we'll say more about this, probably a lot more about it in future sermons. But one of the big differences in the way dispensationalists interpret the Bible and the way non-dispensationalists interpret the Bible is that we hold firmly that Israel is a historic Israel that still has a future existence and hope as prophesied in Romans chapter 11 and throughout the prophets of the Old Testament. But they hold that Israel, because of its betrayal of Jesus, has been set aside and has been replaced by the church. And uh, the church is now the future, and Israel's blessings are uh, given and bestowed to the church. And so that's the idea that they have about the church in Israel. For the, in their mind, the church goes way back uh, even to Adam, as we'll hear in a moment. So they, they misapply the Old Testament law. Uh, they, they just put everything in kind of a big porridge and draw from it what they need to fit doctrine in uh, in a preconceived idea of history. So that's a Roman Catholic Church. Now, as we go from them, we move a step closer to the dispensationalists, but not a lot closer. The Reformed. The Reformed. The Reformed would claim the same hermeneutic that we do. Literal, grammatical, uh, historical, cultural. Claim, claim thing. But how they apply the literal part of it is totally different than how we would apply it. So let's talk about that a moment. Uh, there was a book written in uh, 1995 called Dispensationalism, Rightly Dividing the People of God. Of course, uh, C.I. Schofield wrote a little book called Rightly Dividing the Word of God, and uh, which he talks about dispensations and how they contribute to the understanding of the Bible. So this individual has taken off that title and changed it from rightly dividing the word of God to rightly dividing the people of God, question mark. And in his book, he says, there are some insurmountable scriptural problems that occur if one attempts to consistently literal, to be consistently literal in his approach to interpretation. And so he uh, attacks the dispensationalist saying that he really isn't consistently literal. One of the illustrations he uses for this is the use of the term Assyria in the book of Isaiah in particular. In the early chapters of Isaiah, as we found as we studied through the book of Isaiah, Assyria is mentioned, and it's a reference to the historic nation of Assyria whose captain, capital was Nineveh up to the north in the area where Turkey is today. 
And uh, it was a literal nation. The Bible refers to it as a literal nation. But there are many scholars of the Bible, students of the Bible, who believe that in some cases the, the idea goes over into something more than just Assyria. Assyria was a very wicked, uh, hard nation. They would do terror tactics like the Nazis would do, like some uh, wicked regimes do in wartime. They would do things that would terrify the people, that would, that would uh, cause them to be weakened emotionally. They would uh, take the, the bodies of the dead victims and soldiers and they would pile their skulls in the main part of the city. They did horrendous, very terrible things. And they had a reputation for being a very wicked people and a very terrorizing people. That is why, by the way, that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew that's the kind of people he was going to. And he was just had an inkling that God might save people like that. Can you imagine saving people like that? You think you're too bad to be saved? Oh, you should have been a Ninevite. No, no, nobody's too bad to be saved. In fact, nobody's too good to be saved. They got to be bad enough to know it and confess it to God because that's what he wants us to do is humble ourselves. So sometimes this Assyrian nation, which is a picture of wickedness, uh, some believe is a reference to the end times and the king of the north that will come down because Assyria came down from the north. The coalition from the king of the north in Daniel chapter 11 that we studied recently and Ezekiel chapter 38 39. And he says, well, there you interpreted Assyria, not literally, but as a future prophetic kingdom. But when it comes to Israel, you say, no, it has to be literal Israel. Well, of course, they're saying that Israel doesn't always mean literal Israel. Okay. But I pose this question to you. The, the use of Assyria to represent an end times nation is one nation, one little situation maybe affects a handful of verses of Scripture. But when you make Israel represent things other than the literal Israel, you have to allegorize chapters and chapter and chapter of Old Testament prophecy to justify doing that. A big difference in terms of the extent, the extent it carries things in understanding the Word of God. Another illustration that he uses somewhat is... Uh, kind of interesting he well I'll tell you what he says here let's see uh, he says that Jesus did not come as a literal lamb with four legs and wool and neither will a future millennium come with literal bloody sacrifices well Jesus was not a lamb because God made it clear didn't he not, not us, not our interpretation, but God made it clear in his word that it was a figure. The lamb was a figure. Because the greatest prophet that ever lived, whose name was John the Baptist, okay? He said in John chapter 1, verse 29, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God. The prophet gave that symbolic meaning to the word. And when you go to the blood sacrifices of Isaiah, or excuse me, Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48, and referred to also three or four other places in Isaiah and other places in the prophets, it literally speaks of a blood sacrifice in the millennial kingdom. Now, for our people here, we've gone over this many, many times. 
uh, it's still hard for people to understand, but just let me summarize it in a point. When we live before God, uh, we have sinful bodies until we're glorified, either at the resurrection and the rapture or by being translated in the rapture if we're still alive into glorified bodies. And so we in our sinful bodies have a sin nature. It's uh, limited. It can be overcome by the Spirit of God working in our lives. But we have a sin nature until that day when we are glorified or resurrected. And then we go to heaven with a resurrected, glorified body, which has not got the sin nature any longer. The sin nature has been eradicated by the blood of Christ. And we are before God in our glorified bodies. We stand before God unashamed because we are in glorified bodies that he has transformed through his shed blood. However, in the Old Testament, God came down in person in the form of the Shekinah or dwelling glory of God. It is described in Ezekiel chapter 1, and it is spoken about all through the Old Testament. And when the glory of God, which represented the personal, pres personal presence of God on the earth, when it came down to the earth because God wanted to fellowship with mankind, it couldn't just come down and sit anywhere. It had to come down to an area that had been purified, cleansed, and set apart for the personal God in the person of the Shekinah glory to come down and rest there. It wasn't going to come down anywhere in the midst of the garbage heap. The priests had to take an area and clear it aside and sprinkle it with blood and all the utensils and everything sprinkled with blood with sacrifice, blood sacrifice, to purge that area so that the holy Shekinah glory of God could come down upon this earth. And if you were an Israelite and you wanted to approach and worship him, you brought your sacrifice. Because you are a garbage pit. Did you know that? You still have a sin nature. Hopefully you let the Spirit of God overcome your sin nature and you walk in the fullness of the Spirit of God. But within you, you still have a sin nature. And these individuals had a sin nature. And just like the, the altar and the laver and the, all the parts of the tabernacle had to be purged with blood for God to come and be in the midst of it, so you or if you were an Old Testament person, if you're an Old Testament person, coming to worship God had to have a covering of blood sacrifice to approach a holy God. In the millennial kingdom, it will be the same thing all over again. A personal God coming into the kingdom, into the temple, but the people who are worshiping him, though saved, all of them at the beginning of the kingdom, still have a sin nature. And when they come, they have to be covered with the blood of the sacrifice, which does nothing eternally, but temporarily, in the midst of that setting, allows them to approach a holy God. But you know, Hebrews says, that's behind us. That doesn't apply to us anymore. You're right, it doesn't, because not one of you as Christian believers will ever have to present a sacrifice to come up to a personal God. Because when you're with God, you'll be in your glorified bodies. And he's not going to come down before the kingdom comes down in the beginning of the kingdom. So we're not going to live in a world where the personal presence of God in the Shekinah glory is here, and we're not going to have an opportunity to come before him until we have glorified bodies. So just as Hebrews says, there is no more sacrifice for us because we are set apart by the blood of Christ. But for that millennial state, the same is true. 
Yes, when the Shekinah glory is here on the earth during the kingdom, he'll have to present sacrifices. But when that kingdom period is over and that believer is glorified in a glorified body, never again for eternity will anybody present a sacrifice to approach the living God. Because the shed blood of Jesus Christ will purge the sin nature, will turn the curse. Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, I think it is. And so all men of all ages who've been redeemed and glorified and given glorified bodies will approach God and animal sacrifice, as Hebrews ultimately points out, will be a dead issue. Well, that's a nutshell. And if you have some questions, please approach me about that. I'm sure some of you will. Anyhow, that is... Uh, a reformed group. The reformed inevitably blur the law and grace. Remember, reformed means that they've come out of the Roman Catholic Church and they have reformed their theology and their thinking so that their cry is sola scripture, sola faith, only scripture, only faith, I don't know what the third one is. It's the third one. Uh, what is it? I, I, do, I couldn't hear. Anyway, sola scripture, sola faith. Only by faith, only through scripture. But they came up a background that was so far away from that that they inevitably carried with them some of the baggage of the past. So, as we believe as Sunday is the Lord's Day, they call Sunday the Christian Sabbath. In other words, they take the Saturday of the Old Testament and they bring an application of it into the Sunday of the New Testament. Now, we look at Sunday as the first day of the week, as the day on which Jesus Christ was resurrected, and it's a memorial to us of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a day which saints in Scripture dedicated to service to the Lord to worshiping together, to gathering together, to bringing their gifts to the Lord together. And so it was a special day set apart, but it wasn't a Sabbath. The idea of a Christian Sabbath comes from bringing over the Sabbath of the Old Testament into the church. Now you say, well, uh, then you're doing away with making Sunday special and not working on Sunday. Well, you know, the Reformed, theoretically, although they may not all practice in the pressures of our modern world, Honor Sunday as a day that you don't work, you don't do anything, but you know what the truth is? If they're really going to bring the Sabbath of the Old Testament onto Sunday the New Testament, there's a lot of things that people do that they couldn't do. They don't fully bring the Sabbath onto Sunday. And it's, it's a, 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 a blurring of law and grace. Circumcision and baptism. Uh, one of the reasons uh, some Reformed groups baptize babies who have not believed is because they draw a parallel between baptism in the New Testament and circumcision in the Old Testament. I have a book at home about that thick trying to justify that thinking. Well, circumcision in the Old Testament, number one, it says this twice in Scripture, Ezekiel and one other place, I believe. It is a mark of the covenant that God made with Abraham. That is what circumcision is. It is a mark of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And as such, it's unique to the Israelite people. Other people may practice it for preferential reasons, for health reasons, whatever the reasons. But religiously, biblically speaking, it was practiced by 
Israelites and descendants of Abraham as a memorial to the covenant that God made with Abraham. The act of baptism in the New Testament is altogether different. The act of baptism in the New Testament is a demonstration of the covenant, the new covenant that Jesus made when he offered his blood for the salvation of men and was crucified and buried and rose again on the third day. The baptism in the New Testament is a picture of an individual who has heard this covenant which Jesus presented on the night before his death, received it, and become a part of the body of Christ, is saved, and now the baptism is a picture of that, of that salvation in Christ that, that identifies with the covenant that Christ set forth. And it's not for everybody, because it's only for people who are believers. So you have circumcision in the Old Testament, which was for all descendants of Abraham, even those outside of the Israelite nation, because it was a reminder of the covenant that God gave to Abraham. Baptism, on the other hand, is not, you know, I mean, in the Old Testament, circumcision wasn't just for believers. If you were an Israelite, you were circumcised, or God would bring a curse on your family or your camp. Everybody, even servants would be circumcised as a mark of the covenant. But they weren't all saved. But in the New Testament, it changes. And the baptism is a mark of identification with the covenant. And so it's only for believers and thereby only for people who are old enough to understand and receive the gospel. So there is a confusion of Old Testament truth with New Testament truth with regard to circumcision and baptism. And then there is also the, uh, the uh, sacrament. Uh, we call communion, communion of the Lord's table. In, in, in our understanding of the Bible, that is strictly a pictorial, a pictorial practice that re causes us to remember the death of Christ. But when you read Reformed readers, you get this kind of mixed, mixed understanding. Because it's grace, yes, but work somehow kind of gets implied there. That's why they call it a sacrament. And that's why, by the way, we should not call it a sacrament. Many Baptists who believe exactly the way we do call it a sacrament. But it's not a sacrament. A sacra has the idea of sacra, which has the idea with some kind of merit. We call it an ordinance from the word order. Because we do it not because it gives us grace, but because we were ordered to do it by Jesus Christ as a memorial of his death, burial, and resurrection. So it is an ordinance to us, but Reformed people think of it as a sacrament and sometimes mix works in in a subtle way with grace. We had a really good pamphlet that I didn't have time to think to get out and publish. I will, though. If anyone wants it, let me know. In fact, if one of you men could put a sign-up sheet in the back, I'd appreciate it. it it's called, uh, uh, it, it's about the Reformed movement and some warnings, point by point, about six or seven points in great detail. Uh, that would be very helpful to you on this subject. Okay, so they also impose on the church tradition, writings of reformers that uh, they quote quite frequently. They are very scholarly. They like to use Latin terms. And they like to talk about the deeper meaning of Scripture. 
And they portray the premillennialists as being basically a babe in kindergarten who's kind of gotten an idea of the literal meaning of the word. But there's deeper truth there. Even though they claim to interpret literally, there's, there's deeper truth there that comes with extensive and deep study in the word of God. They also advocate that the New Testament not only expands and develops the Old Testament, but the New Testament redefines the Old Testament. In other words, it takes statements in the Old Testament and gives them an understanding based on New Testament revelation that is different than the understanding and impression that the Old Testament saint would have had when he read them. It reads into them different meaning, new meaning, that is contrary to what is the plain understanding of an Old Testament saint who would have read it. You know, you know what that would be called? Deception. If God gave them revelation that he intended to change the meaning of later, he deceived those people. And God is not a deceiver. God tells the truth always, always tells the truth. And so there is a matter of, uh, of redefining. Not in the sense, for example, the law is dead, but in the sense that it is what it said but this is what it means, changing the meaning from what the original readers understood. Okay, now as we move closer, well, this really isn't a move closer, but the theonomist, if you want to fill in your blanks, theonomist, theonomist, T-H-E-O-N-O-M-I-S-T, theonomist. That is a person who wants to take the Old Testament law and incorporate it into New Testament civil governments. Russus Rushduni was an advocator of that and wrote extensively on that subject. And amazingly enough, because he was much involved in the Christian school movement and in the homeschool movement, he was brought into many Baptist churches and preached in their pulpits and distributed his books, which were post-millennial. I'm not going to try to explain that right now. But he was a theonomist. He was a reconstructionist. Same thing. A reconstructionist is one that wants to take the culture today and the governments of today, and reconstruct them according to God's righteousness, the Old Testament law. And the thinking is that if we keep working on this over hundreds of years, maybe thousands, maybe ten thousands of years, that the church will gradually take over the culture and governments of the world, and when the church has finally succeeded at that, Jesus will come back. I got news for you. He's never going to come back under those terms because the church is never going to be able to accomplish that. The Bible says the only one that can accomplish that is Jesus Christ. And he will accomplish it when he comes back at the revelation. The other word is post-millennialist. Uh, they believe the millennium is the church age now, not a thousand years. But the thousand years is symbolic, even though it's mentioned six times in Revelation 21 as a thousand years. It's symbolic of the church period. It's a long period of time that's undefined. Hence the idea of post-millennialism. When Christ returns, it'll be after this long period of time. So it's kind of a misnomer. It's not really a millennium at all. Okay. So it's a post-periodist or something. But the Lord doesn't come back until after it's over. And so these individuals... Uh, also institute, they want to institute the Old Testament law into civil government of the world today. And then there's the Reformed in eschatology. This is probably the major, in fact, this, this individual who wrote this book does uh, an amazingly good job, being a Reformed individual, of understanding what, what uh, premillennialists believe and setting it down before he attacks it. <laughs> 
Uh, I commend him for that. And so he's not shooting a straw man. He, he has some arguments that are thought-provoking and so forth. But uh, he, had, he says, and major premillennial scholars say, the big, biggest difference between people who are dispensational and people who are not dispensational is their view of Israel and the church. Because you see, these people who are theonomous, who are reformed, they don't see a future for Israel. So their concept of what we would call the church age and their concept of what we would call the millennial kingdom is totally different because there is no Israel. And the church, in fact, doesn't start at Pentecost. It started with Adam because it includes all the saved all through time. It goes all the way back to Adam. That's kind of interesting because the New Testament certainly is a lot different than the Old Testament, but that's, that's, there's no future for Israel. And so the millennial kingdom is not anything about Israel, but actually it's merged into the church and it's just symbolically representative of the church. So they, they've done away with the future for a historical Israel. And the church is not a defined time from Pentecost to the rapture. It goes all the way back to Adam. And uh, there is no millennial kingdom, no Israel in the future. Well, that, I mean, we just finished. I think you'll find out this afternoon uh, in the report. We just finished our study of Isaiah. Stephen, Pastor Wesco, and I had a discussion about this last night. Late, 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 late last night. And he says, how many sermons did you preach, by the way, on Isaiah? And so I did some counting quickly, and I looked. We preached through exegetically all of Isaiah except, I think, seven chapters. And seven from 66 is 59, right? 59. So we, we preached through 59 chapters of the book of Isaiah, and it took 91 sermons to do it. Thank you for your patience. But it was a blessing to take some text in Isaiah that we have read for years and never really understood what it was talking about. Until we took time to take this obscure, I mean, it's, I, hate to, I hate to say any of, the part, any of the word of God is obscure, but unfortunately, because of who people are, we don't, we don't know our Bibles well enough to know everything about them like we, we hope to. We keep working on it here. Uh, some of those obscure portions of Scripture that came to life, but with the Reformed, those, those visions of, of the kingdom, which are all through the book of Isaiah, all through the book of Isaiah. I've been listening to Jeremiah. I really would have liked to preach Jeremiah, but I can't take you through two prophets that long. <laughs> anyway, I've been listening to Jeremiah as I fall asleep at night. Now, that's quite something to listen to when you're falling asleep at night. But in the first, I've gotten through the first 10 chapters, I think. I'm not really sure because you don't know when you end because you fall asleep. But I got in first, the first 10 chapters, so, and I can only see quickly in listening one reference to the kingdom. So the kingdom is special. And uh, a consistent, consistent literal interpretation of Scripture, brother, consistent, you're right. This is where the Reformed and people who are non-dispensational depart from the literal interpretation of Scripture and all of a sudden say the symbols and all the different pictures of prophecy should be looked at as symbols before you think about anything literal. And when we go to it, we say we look for the literal meaning and then conclude it if there are no literal applications to symbols. So we approach it just oppositely. Well, so what? That's, that's why a sermon. Wait a minute. Where are we going from here? 
Where, what, so what? Well, here's the so what. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. You know, in his book here, this is, this is interesting. This is how he starts this book, preface. Quote, I believe in the pre-tribulational rapture and in dispensationalism because all of the famous prophecy scholars teach it, end quote. He writes, it was those words which I heard on Christian radio one afternoon that finally convinced me to write this book. The topic of the talk show was the rapture, which prompted dozens of phone calls from listeners. One caller, a middle-aged woman, was firmly convinced that pre-tribulationism and dispensationalism are true. When asked why she believed as she did, she responded with the words quoted above. Essentially, she believed what her favorite authors taught, and I could not help wondering how many other people would have responded the same way. How would you have responded? I believe this because my preacher told me this. He stood in the preacher, he stood in the pulpit and he pounded and pounded and pounded the pulpit about this dispensationalist has got to be true. I mean, we're a Bible-believing church. Is that all you would be able to say? And yet, on the other hand, if you start digging, there are some things to discern that are quite fine. They're quite delicate. There are some arguments here. They're quite convincing, quite convincing. Dr. Wickham, who was probably one of the foremost premillennial scholars, let's put it this way, he wasn't the foremost, but he was among the foremost premillennial scholars uh, in recent times. He, he made a statement one time in class that, you know, if I'd gotten caught up with the wrong group, I could very easily be a Reformed Christian right now and not a premillennialist. So how do you people in the pew who aren't full-time Bible students, how do you deal with this? How do you know? I mean, yes, yes, you need to know your Bible. Come back to that in a minute. I want to tell you, God has built into the framework of how the church works, how he expects you to be protected in these kinds of situations. And I want to point you to this text in Ephesians chapter 4 to see what application there is today. Here's what it says. And he, that's God, gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Well, that's an interesting group of people. Apostles. Those are people who spoke the word of God with truth. That's the foundation. Church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, according to the Bible. And some prophets. Those are people who are able to look into the word of God and, and interpret it. And, tell what God is saying. Evangelists. Those technically are church planners. They go out and share the gospel and indoctrinate the people and build them up spiritually, help the babes on the milk to grow. And some pastors who care for issues of life other than academic matters. And some teachers who are very academic in their approach to the scriptures. See, he's given this diverse, diversely gifted group of people to the church why? For the perfecting of the saints. To bring the saints to maturity. For the work of the ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ. To keep us all growing 
in truth. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God into a perfect, that means mature man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Notice this, verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Uh, God does not want, Jesus does not want you going around every time you hear this doctrine, this idea, this person's trying to convince you of this theology or this doctrine. He doesn't want you going around living in doubt all the time, never knowing what to believe and whether you should change. That's why he's given the church these individuals, to give you some guidance, some direction. Uh, another interesting text is 2 Timothy chapter 3, which is a little bit more personal than this one. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 13. But evil men... And seducers shall wax worse, wax, wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, Timothy was a young man. And Paul was trying to give him maturity. Do you know what happens to some young people? They grow up in a good church that teaches the Word of God, that's worked diligently to get into their minds and hearts and souls what the Bible teaches and what it says. But when they get out of that, when they grow up and get away from there for some reason, they get married, they go to school, they get a job off somewhere, and some other doctrine or idea comes along and challenges them, they're quick to think, oh, you know, I've just been indoctrinated in that all my life. I need to get out and look at this new stuff. I'll bet you there's something here I don't know. I, don't, I need to be enlightened. I'm, I'm going to listen to these people. Whoa, wait a minute. That's what it's warning you about here. You go away from here, young people, to a school. Excuse me. Almost got off the edge here. Got to keep you awake. I hear preachers used to do all kinds of annex. Uh, you get away from here and get out on your own somewhere and start hearing, and you will. Believe me, you will. And start hearing all these things. Say, oh, boy, I've been there all my life, but there must be something wrong. All these people out here that believe this way, and there's just so few that believe the way I do. I just really wonder about it. The Bible's saying here, be careful. Be careful. You know the people that were teaching you when you grew up. Their sincerity, their dedication to the Word of God. Don't walk away from that quickly. That doesn't mean you shouldn't evaluate other things and learn to think. But it does mean you should be very reluctant forsake the truth to which you've been exposed and given for another doctrine. God wants us to have stability. So he does it, number one, well, not sorry in this order, but number one, through the way he's equipped the church with teachers and so forth. Number two, by, for young people, the background of truth. And then last of all, 
turn to 2 Timothy 2.15. The real great foundation. Study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. The word of God. You always go back to the word of God. The word of God supersedes all the other things. The word of God is the core. But don't be proud and think, oh, you, you've got it all figured out. And you, and, you can, and you can handle anybody. Don't get that kind of an attitude. God has built-in safeguards. Parents, home, family, church friends. He has given gifts to the church, preachers, teachers, evangelists to teach you and ground you in the truth and keep you from having to go out and say, oh, I wonder if this is true, I wonder if that is true. But ultimately, they all need to be teaching this book. I'd like you to bow your head and close your eyes as we close today. Uh, before, before you do that, though, would you take your hymn books and turn to number 187, Amazing Grace. The ladies are going to play a duet for us. Our invitation is going to be a little bit different today. Uh, I'm going to challenge you to be meditating and thinking on some things. And to come forward if you need to do that, to kneel and pray or to seek more information about how you can be saved. But they're going to play a very beautiful arrangement of various songs about grace. And then you're going to sing one of those songs, number 187. So have your hymn books turned so we can just seamlessly kind of move into that. Now that you've done that, bow your head and close your eyes and just meditate with, us for, with me for a moment. How marvelous is the grace of God. We rejoice in the grace of God. My life verses are Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. God's marvelous, marvelous grace. We should always return humbly to that. And I tell you today, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, that grace through faith is your access to God through Jesus Christ. And that if you are a believer, God gives grace to the humble. So I just ask you to meditate as they play this song this morning. Meditate upon the marvelous grace of God that saved you or will save you if you call out to him. The marvelous grace of God that empowers us to live for Christ. Father in heaven, speak to our hearts through the music and the words that we might grow in our appreciation and love for you because of the great price you paid in your grace to save us. In Jesus' name.